I'm sure we have many people here in the congregation this morning who have experience taking tests. Maybe for some of you, that last exam that you took was a long time ago and hardly in your memory. For others, maybe it was just last week at school. We were often tested, but tests are usually something that we kind of have to submit to. You know, you you had to sign up for the bar exam, but you really weren't enthusiastic about taking it or the CPA or whatever it was for your job. Tests are kind of foisted upon us. I wonder if you can imagine volunteering for a test. You might see somebody who's lost their cool saying, just, just, just test me, try me, see if I won't follow through on my threats. That's not usually a good thing, right? Um, and I think most of us would acknowledge we were, were sort of scared to ask God for a test, right? I was talking to a brother on the phone this week who was going through some hard things in his job, and he, he recounted how this wasn't the hardest thing he and his wife had been through. He said when they, they were first married, he lost two jobs in one week. And he said that right before he had lost those jobs, he had asked his wife uh, to start memorizing together the book of James. And they just memorized James chapter 1, where they're told to count it all joy when they fall into various trials. So he said, from now on, whenever he thinks or talks about memorizing something with his wife, she says, wait a minute, what, what did we get into last time we did this? That the Lord might test us. Testing from the Lord is something that's, that's serious, right? It challenges our faith. And few of us would volunteer to be tested by God. But here in our sermon text this morning, which is Daniel chapter 1, we're going to see Daniel tested. And we're going to see also that it was Daniel's idea that he asks for this test. He proposes this test, which is, I think, a test of his faith. As we look at this book of Daniel, it's a book that often puzzles us. If you know it, you know it for probably two reasons. Daniel in the lion's den, or you know it for the crazy visions at the end that you don't understand. And then some of us also know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but we might not even know that comes from Daniel, right? Because the names are so funny. So we'll meet Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego today. Uh, But this book of Daniel is a book that is about God's judgment on his people. As we'll see in the verse 1, it begins in the context of judgment. So Pastor John explained that for us a little bit uh, in Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah 25 and Daniel are kind of talking about this same period. A period when God is bringing judgment upon Judah in Israel, the land of Canaan. And as part of that judgment... He is, he's putting Jerusalem under siege, and we're seeing the, the, um, the taking of people and goods out of Judah to Babylon and to Nebuchadnezzar's family. So we'll get into that more as we dive into the text. But that's the context, is this first year of the, I'm sorry, the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim and the third year of uh, the first year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign when this judgment begins at the house of God. As we read this chapter, we're going to see it begins here around 600 B.C. And the book extends all the way to when King Cyrus takes, the, takes over and basically conquers the Assyrians, or conquers the Babylonians. And that's in like the year 540 or 539 or something. So it's a long span of time covered by the single book. And according to God's word, Daniel lived through this whole period. So he's a young man, probably a teenager, when he first gets captured and exiled. And he lives his entire life in exile in Babylon, ministering through the reigns of these various kings, and not just kings, but various empires. 
because the Babylonians get conquered by the Persians. And we see Darius and Cyrus mentioned in the book of Daniel. So Daniel's lifetime lasts really from the, the beginning of the end of the temple to the time when Cyrus sends back Israelites to begin restoring the temple. So with that kind of very general context in mind, let's go ahead and read Daniel chapter 1. We're going to read the whole chapter and then dive into it. <clears throat> Listen to God's word. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people to Israel, both the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why, sh- why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is God's word. As we walk through this text this morning, we're going to try to enter into the story that this text tells. So we're not going to arrange it so much by kind of general headings, but sort of try to see the the arc of the story. So the the setting and the conflict and the climax. So the the setting we might say here is God's judgment, or God the king judges his people. That's the setting we see in verse 1. 
And the conflict is introduced because we see that there are two kings. There's God the king judging his people, but we also see Nebuchadnezzar the king, who has a lot to give to his people and God's people. So the conflict seems to be between God the giver and Nebuchadnezzar the giver. And that conflict is heightened as we see Daniel's conviction about his food. And the climax comes with Daniel's test. So we see God the king and judge as the setting, God the giver and Nebuchadnezzar the giver as a conflict. We see, you'll see Daniel's conviction raises the conflict, and then Daniel's test is the climax. So let's walk through this. First, God's judgment. Again, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. So we see this context of judgment. There's one little discrepancy you might notice. We see here in Daniel, we read of the third year of Jehoiakim. John read to us of the fourth year of Jehoiakim. This seems to be just a different way of counting the years of a king. So the Israelites would begin counting year one as the year in which he became king. And the Babylonians would count year one as the first full year of his service of king. So they just had different ways, but it's talking about the same time. And so we see that the king here, Jehoiakim, is given into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's just a, a good old rampaging, empire-building, besieging king. Right? He's conquering territory. He's amassing power to himself. But really, we have the true story behind the story. God gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. And the passage we read from Jeremiah tells us why God did that. Because of this mounting disobedience and rebellion on the part of of Israel, and especially here we're talking about Judah, because the, the northern tribes have already been taken off by the Assyrians. So we have this mounting rebellion, and God the king judges his people. So the, the fact that Israel is exiled doesn't represent a setback for God. God the king has not been knocked off his throne just because Jerusalem is under siege and will eventually fall to Nebuchadnezzar. You see, this is very much part of God's plan. To judge his people. God is the king and judge. He gives Nebuchadnezzar into, I mean, gives Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. So very clearly the setting of this is God the king. God the sovereign. God is the one who gives in the ultimate way. Right? He has the power to give a kingdom into another king's hand. And that's what he does. That's the setting of our story. But now here comes the conflict, right? We see that Nebuchadnezzar takes what God has given him and unknowingly, I don't think he's not recognizing this as a gift from God, he starts bringing things, right? That the, the verb shift. Nebuchadnezzar brought people and objects. He brought temple artifacts. So it seems like the, the uh, Jehoiakim probably paid him off you know, with some tribute, some of the artifacts of the temple. And as was a custom, he brought some people from the royalty and the nobility of Jerusalem to serve in his court, which seems to have been a custom for the Babylonians. And so what we see in Nebuchadnezzar doing this is him exercising his own kingly prerogatives, right? He's his own kind of sovereign. He's got authority in his kingdom. He's won this little battle. And it seems like probably he was actually fighting the Egyptians to whom Jehoiakim had pledged loyalty. So he's won this battle, and now he gets to take the spoils of war. And we see when he gets his 
goods and his people back home, he starts doing what kings do. They give commands, right? And he gives commands for these, uh, for these people to be brought and for them to be provided for in his palace and for them to receive a Babylonian education. They were to be taught the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. But note that the kinds of people that it says that he wants. He wants to bring some of the people, this is verse 3, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. So he, he's not just looking for, for some people to kind of hold the door open, right? He's looking for, for beautiful people, <laughs> for smart people, for wise people, people who are capable of entering into his, his college that he's got set up and succeeding. And ultimately what we'll see is he wants them to become Babylonians who will give him good advice about how to run his kingdom. But when we, when we read this in scripture, it's, it's a two-edged sword. Nebuchadnezzar has his own definition of what a wise person is, right? But we know in scripture that God has his own definitions of what wisdom is. As a matter of fact, this book of Daniel, even though we kind of think of it as one of the prophets, the Jewish way of organizing the Old Testament was to assign this to the group of scriptures called the writings, which included the Psalms and Proverbs and Job. We might also call the wisdom books. Um, so, so Daniel is, is in kind of this category of wisdom, and you see this, category, this idea of wisdom emphasized. So just like we have God the sovereign and Nebuchadnezzar the sovereign, we have these two competing ideas of wisdom introduced as well. But uh, we see Nebuchadnezzar looking for wise people, and by implication we're meant to see Daniel is one of those wise people. And one of the, one of the questions that's going to play out is, what kind of wise person is Daniel? Is he wise in the ways of the Babylonians, or is he wise in the ways of God? We know what kind of wise person Nebuchadnezzar wants. What kind of wise person will Daniel turn out to be? Another way that Nebuchadnezzar exercises his kingly prerogative is by giving, right? He's, he's giving them food. He's set aside some of his wine and his food for these Israelite youth to come into the palace and to enjoy. And he's given them this education plan. We might uh, you know, kind of um, guess at many of the motivations for Nebuchadnezzar. This is a good way to enculturate people, right? You get people out of their own culture into yours. You, you feed them with your food. You teach them your, your great ancient stories. You make them learn your language. And they say, man, this is not so bad, right? We're sorry about what happened to our friends back in Jerusalem, but we, it turned out pretty good for us. His goal is to win their loyalty, that, they'll benefit, that they will benefit him by becoming loyal to him as they, as they feed on his food and, and learn his ways. And this is not too different than kind of what we see a dynamic company is doing today, right? They, they locate themselves in, in big cities. Uh, urbanists even have a word. They call them superstar cities, where these, there's these high clusters of, of colleges and smart people, and they kind of try to capitalize on the fact that we got a bunch of smart people here, and we can take some of these smart people and get them to do smart stuff for us. Well, Nebuchadnezzar is doing a similar thing, although he doesn't have the same recruitment strategy, right, as, the, as Google does. He's capturing these people, and he doesn't, have to, he doesn't have to build a new city somewhere else. He can just bring all the smart people to himself, and he's going to use them 
not to create the next killer app, but to create an empire, right? They're going to help him build his kingdom. But at the root of this project is Nebuchadnezzar himself. He values nobility and beauty and wisdom and, and intellectual capability. And he wants this college of experts to have this capacity for excellence. But he believes that their capacity for excellence will, will grow when they receive his provisions, when they're fed at his table and they're equipped with his training. So he believes that they will, they will grow when they're enriched by Babylonian wisdom and wine. And their, their ultimate prosperity and usefulness will then result to his own benefit, but it will come from his own benevolence. And so this, again, sets up this basic tension. Who is the true king and benefactor? Who is the true giver? Is it Israel's God or is it Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar can't really understand this tension, but, but we can as readers of this book. We see further Nebuchadnezzar's convictions and ambitions in that these four young Israelites, likely, again, teenagers, maybe 14 or 15, they are given new Babylonian names. This is important because their Hebrew names testify to the fact that they belong to Israel's God. So, for instance, the name Daniel meant, my God is judge, but his Babylonian name probably meant something like, may Bel protect his life. Bel referring to the Babylonian god Marduk. So Nebuchadnezzar thinks he has what these young Judahites need. He has what they need to flourish. They need to repent of their old ways of serving Yahweh and to receive the blessings of the Babylonian culture and religion. Nebuchadnezzar would say, Nebuchadnezzar loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. And he's trying to make that plan come to pass by giving him these gifts and feeding them in, in this education. He wants them to believe that blessings come from Nebuchadnezzar. We have to admit, if we were in Daniel's shoes, this would be a very appealing prospect, especially when you consider how young they were, probably in their early teens. You know, they, they weren't, we can say, probably guilty of all of the sins that, that got Israel into this mess. They're, they're young and it seems pious. They seem to be trying to Follow the Lord. So if you're, if you're that age and you're carted off by an enemy king, you're brought into a palace, you're fed at his table, educated in his elite college, it seems like this is, you've landed on your feet, right? And it would have been an easy thing to go along with the king's program and to embrace all the privileges that came along with life in the Babylonian palace. It would be interesting to think about what, what would we have done in that situation? Well, a better question, maybe, what are we currently doing? Because we're not maybe in the Babylonian palace, but there are lots of privileges and opportunities open to us, aren't there, in the, in the culture in which we live? Aren't there promises that are made to us of, of opportunity and power and influence? Don't we have plenty of opportunities to accommodate ourselves to a world that's at odds with God's ways? Then we have a culture that promises a lot to be a giver. Which giver are we trusting in? Which kind of wisdom are we seeking? That's the tension at the heart of this story. God the giver, God the king, versus Nebuchadnezzar the king and the giver. 
So that's the basic conflict. And we see the conflict gets heightened beginning in verse 8. In the way that Daniel and his friends respond to their situation. Let me just read that again for us. Chapter 1, verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. So Daniel's been offered this great thing, right? This great food and wine. He's been offered this training program. But he's resolved, he's committed in his heart not to defile himself. If we look at what this idea of defilement means in other contexts in the Old Testament, we see that it means to, to do something or to live in a way that made you unfit for the service of God. It made you, it kind of disbarred you from serving and worshiping the one true God. So another place where we see this, kind of in contemporary to Daniel, uh, is the priest in Ezra's day who had married Canaanite wives. We see this in Ezra chapter 2, in verse 60 and following. They had married Canaanite wives and joined Canaanite households. So they took the name of their their Canaanite father-in-laws. But then when they returned, they wanted to be re-registered as priests. And they were not allowed to. We're told that they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. Same word here as defiled. Similarly, in Malachi 1, the Lord rebukes priests who profaned his altar by offering food that they knew was unclean. They offered the blind lambs on the altar, the lambs that had been killed by lions, instead of offering the lambs that were most costly without spot or blemish. And so what we see is the category of people, in this case, both priests, who were defiled because even though they knew what God required of them, they carelessly disregarded what the Lord told them to do. You might say this is high-handed sin, right? This is the toddler that knows you don't want them to touch the thing, and they look at you, and they touch the thing, right? This is when we know what God wants, and we do it anyway. We do the, we do the wrong thing anyway. It's careless disregard for what you know to be right. Now, it would be a challenge for any of us to know exactly how to live faithfully in Nebuchadnezzar's palace, We can imagine it's an especially hard challenge for a young man like Daniel to be in this situation. But Daniel is resolved not to defile himself. And Daniel focuses on the king's food because here is an area where it was clear how God's people were supposed to live, right? God had provided for them laws about the kinds of food that were clean to eat and the kinds that were unclean. And so Daniel knows this. It's, it's clearly revealed for him. It was probably taught to him as a, a young man in his family's home. And because he knows this, he's resolved not to defile himself. In verse 12, we see that he asks for vegetables. And literally what that refers to is food that's made from seeds. So you could say grown from seeds or maybe like grains that are made into bread or cakes. So he's asking for kind of the basic, most simplest diet he can ask for, bread and water. And he can do that because that's a safe category. No vegetables were unclean. The only thing that would have made them unclean was if they had been used in a pagan or you know, sacrifice to Baal or to Marduk. And it seems like there's probably less of a chance of grains being used in that context than, there, than animals. So he, he kind of asks for that kind of food that's most likely to allow him to comply with God's law. But I think there's even more going on here than obedience to the, the food laws in the Old Testament. As one commentator put it, Daniel did not want to use his position for personal gain 
in contrast to the priests who defiled the priesthood in Nehemiah. So he has a, a plum spot, right? And he does not want to use this for gain. Daniel also knows that Israel is under judgment. And this will become clearer as we read Daniel, but in Daniel 9, there's a whole prayer of repentance for Israel's sins. So he knows Israel's under judgment. He knows that this exile is something God is doing. And so he knows this is not the time for feasting, especially when he knows many of his brother and sister Israelites are starving in Jerusalem. One of the things that will happen is that there will be no food, right, because of the siege. So his desire for simple and plain food is not asceticism for its own sake. It's a, it's a fasting as a sign of repentance. This is no time for feasting. And Daniel's choice of food shows that. Most importantly, though, Daniel also knew God's people were to rely on God to sustain them. The food we eat, or we, that we need each day to survive, is a symbol of how God provides. Right? We're, we're dependent creatures. Right? If we don't eat... We will die eventually, right? We need food every day. And when God gives us food, the fact that you woke up this morning and had something to eat in your refrigerator is a sign of God's great care and compassion for you. But this is not just true kind of in a common grace sense. It was true in a very special way for Old Testament saints. So think about Deuteronomy 8.16, when Moses is recounting how the Lord fed Israel in the wilderness with manna, And it says that he fed them in order to humble them and to test them so that they would not say, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. The way that Israel was supernaturally fed was a reminder that they existed by the power and grace of God. Their daily provision was dependent on God. And God came through for them miraculously with bread from heaven. And this is not just an Old Testament thing for Israelites, right? What does the Lord teach us to pray in the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. So our approach to our regular need for food can either demonstrate our faith or our unbelief. That's true for us today, and it's something that Daniel recognizes as well. And so his resolve here is resolved for his life and health not to ultimately come from the great bounty of Nebuchadnezzar's table, but to come from God alone. And we see that dynamic at work in verse 10 when the chief of the eunuchs expresses this concern that if if Daniel and his friends just eat bread and drink water, they're going to start to to lose weight. They're going to look pale and skinny, and they're not going to look healthy like all their other college classmates. So, there is, so the, the assumption is that the, the diet Daniel has chosen is, is not all he needs. Not all a growing boy needs, right? He needs more than this. So Daniel, by choosing and asking for these, this, these, this diet, is, is trusting in God. And he's trusting God not just to barely keep him alive, but to make him flourish. For Daniel's approach to work out, the Lord must intervene and bless him. So Daniel's conviction is that he should not defile himself, not just with ceremonially unclean foods. He should not defile himself with unbelief, but he should live by faith in the life-giving goodness of his God, of the God who fed Israel in the wilderness and who brought them out of Egypt. This is a huge theological statement 
that Daniel is making by asking for this food. So when we put Daniel's approach to food together, we see that here in exile, in Nebuchadnezzar's very own palace, he's trying to display repentance towards God. He's trying to live a life of faith in God to sustain him and give him life. And he also wants to be submissive to the revealed law of God. He wants to live by repentance, faith, and obedience to God's word. That's Daniel's commitment. That is Daniel's wisdom. This is wisdom for exiles. If we want to know how to live in a world that rejects God's truth, these are the the ABCs from which we should never depart. Repentance, faith, and submission to God's word. But as we see in Daniel's case, when we try to live that way, it heightens the conflict, right? Daniel's problem is that He's not ultimately in control of what he eats, right? The king himself has commanded that he should be given certain kinds of food and wine for everyone in the training program. And as the chief of the eunuchs put it, if if Daniel eats in this way and he starts to look sickly, it's not Daniel's head that's on the chopping block, right? The 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 chief says, you'll endanger my head with the king. And so if Daniel's plan fails, it's not just Daniel that pays the price. But yet we're also told in this text that when Daniel had this idea and didn't want to defile himself, that the Lord gave him favor and compassion with the chief of the eunuchs. The Lord is sustaining Daniel as he seeks to live faithfully. Again, we have these two kings, right? God the king is providing for his servant Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar the king is insisting on a certain kind of provision. We can imagine that the chief of the eunuchs reacted differently to Daniel than he did. So even though the chief doesn't say, yes, Daniel, you can do your plan, he also doesn't say no, right? He had every right to say, you're not acting very wisely, off with your head, or just you're kicked out of the palace, fend for yourself on the streets of Babylon, right? So he doesn't do that. And so Daniel kind of interprets this not explicitly saying no as an opportunity to go down the chain of command to somebody else. But before we get there, it's just worth um, noting how we could also imagine different reactions of Daniel to what the chief eunuch said, right? Daniel could have gone on a hunger strike, right? He could have refused to eat. He could have channeled Martin Luther and said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not eat because acting against one's conscience is neither safe or sound. Here I stand. You could have said that. But he doesn't do that. We could also imagine Daniel saying, well, I tried. You know, I tried to be faithful, but I was denied. So I'm not going to, you know, I'm just going to drop it. You know, he doesn't do that either. So at least not here. He doesn't yet take the Luther approach. He, he kind of will, right, when he goes to the lion's den. But not here yet. Nor does he give up his cause. That's a profound lesson about how we exercise wisdom, right? Wisdom requires knowing what is an appropriate response to this situation. And I think we have to show generosity as Christians exercise wisdom, right? Different Christians may decide to to interact with different kinds of opposition in different ways. But at least in this case, wisdom does not lead Daniel to, to kind of ultimate defiance or to rolling over. Instead, he takes a different tact. He goes to the steward who's under the chief of the eunuchs and who's over he and his friends, and he makes this request. He has to be given vegetables for 10 days. 
he asks for a test. He asks for a test that will try his own faith. He's going to have to go through with this and be kind of left to the, to the opinion of his Babylonian overseers. He says, you know, look at me and see. Whatever you see, act accordingly. He's acting in a way that's depending on the Lord to sustain and bless him and his friends. That's kind of under the radar throughout this. Is Daniel's not acting alone, but he's involving his, his three friends in this. It's the four Judahite youths who are all involved in this. He asks for this 10-day test, which may seem like a small detail, but it actually starts to establish a crucial pattern for the whole book of Daniel. We see this pattern of a test over time, which requires God's deliverance and his people's faith. We're going to see this play out on a personal scale with Daniel and his three friends in different, play, different ways. But we're also going to see this play out on a kind of cosmic scale as God's people wait for God's kingdom to arise and defeat all the evil kingdoms of this world. And we'll see that over and over again, God shows himself to be abundantly good. But for exiles, wisdom means having this kind of enduring faith, trusting God to the end, trusting that God will deliver you know, oftentimes we talk about being a pessimist or an optimist. And whenever we talk about that, we say glass half empty, glass half full, right? But one problem with that is it's a very static thing. It's, it's here and now. And what we need to do is introduce the element of time. So over time, do you think things are getting better or things are getting worse, right? And it really depends a lot on where you set the time window, right? You know, I'm, I'm 40, so I anticipate... Sometime in the next, you know, 40 to 60 years, I'm going to die. Or you might say, in that time window, I'm kind of pessimistic, right? I'm anticipating suffering. But ask me about my 10,000-year horizon, right? I'm very optimistic because of my faith in what the Lord will do, right? Daniel is being called here to trust, here first in this 10-day window, that, he, that God will provide and that God will prove him in the test. And so that's exactly what Daniel does. He asks for this test, and by God's grace, the steward goes along with it. And that really, I think, brings us kind of to the climax. We're kind of wondering, what's going to happen? What will, what will Daniel be proved? Who will show themselves as the true giver? You know, will Nebuchadnezzar's hosts, who are all being fed with his wine and food, will they prove to be healthier? Or will Daniel and his friends... Look at verse 50. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who, are, who, were, who ate the king's food. So this is the only place you're allowed to talk about someone being fatter, right? This is a good thing. They were fatter in flesh. They looked healthy. They not only had survived, but they had flourished and they had outstripped all of their contemporaries. You know, I don't know exactly what metrics they're using, but it was clear to a visual inspection that Daniel and his three friends, they were, they were doing better. You know, the, the text is a little ambiguous because it says the steward took away their food and gave them the, the vegetables. It, it may have been that he, he decided, well, this program worked so well for the four, maybe we should give this to everybody. It's not clear whether just the four or the whole, the whole college class got the vegetables and water treatment. Whatever the case is, it's clear that God's power and goodness are the reasons that the four young men look so healthy, 
Right? It's, it's not that Daniel has stumbled on the super diet of fasting. Right? This is not what we're being told here. So don't, don't go looking for the diet of Daniel. Instead, look to Daniel's God who abundantly provides. God reveals himself to be not just the God who fed his people with manna in the wilderness. He's not just the God who provided the promised land flowing with milk and honey. He shows himself to be the God who's able to sustain Israel even through exile. God is at work in Nebuchadnezzar's palace. God's arm of salvation extends even to exile in Babylon. When we look at our world around us, aren't we often tempted to despair? I think this week would be provide a lot of opportunities to despair, right? We saw the, the tragic murder of, of, of the six people at the Covenant School. And then we've seen our media take the murderer and turn her into a victim because of their gender politics. This seems like an impossible situation. If we think about just the prospects of our, our nation and our, our politics, it may, may be right. Maybe this is an impossible situation. But we should not think that God is absent, even when our world is faithless. The goodness and power of God did not suffer a setback this week. He's still saving sinners. This morning, there are, those saints are gathering in the, the church next door to the school to praise their God and to recount his salvation. So even in the midst of this unspeakable sorrow, he is being glorified. God's arm is not too short to save, even if we feel like we live in the modern day Babylon. He is working and he's preserving his saints. He is the great God and giver. As we read this text, we have no question how the conflict resolves, right? God the giver is the one who sustains his people through the test. He sustains them far beyond what they could have asked or imagined. I think we often find that we're most tempted to despair when our eyes are on the wrong things. And Daniel has his eye fixed on God, the good giver. It's interesting then that this pattern of God proving himself over time immediately repeats. So after the 10-day test, when after the, at the end of the 10 days, Daniel is found to be so hale and hearty, we see that there's another time period that expires at the end of this passage. So verse 18 begins at the end of that time. At the end of what time? We're going back to this three-year period. Daniel and his friends were supposed to be trained in the wisdom of Babylon. And so at the end of that time, they were going to be brought back before King Nebuchadnezzar to be evaluated on how they had succeeded. But look at the key to their success in verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had an understanding in all visions and dreams. Once again, we see God giving, right? First, God gave Judah into, Jehoiakim's, uh, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Now, he's given wisdom to Daniel and his three friends. And it's because of this wisdom, at the end of this three-year period, at the end of this testing period, they are found to have outstripped their colleagues in the college 
by leaps and bounds. So verse 20 says, In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. God is abundantly good to his people. He equips them by his grace to endure to the end. Again, there's no question. Which king is the greater king? Which king is the greater wisdom uh, giver? Who has the greater wisdom? It's clearly revealed to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God that Nebuchadnezzar thinks he is stolen from. God is at work in his midst. The most uh, mind-blowing thing of all is that God is giving Nebuchadnezzar these four wise counselors as Nebuchadnezzar continues to besiege and will ultimately destroy Jerusalem. And we were not told that Daniel told him the the battle plan, but we can't mistake the fact that it's it's during the same period when Nebuchadnezzar is bringing an end to God's temple that God has provided Nebuchadnezzar with people to minister God's wisdom to him. What an amazingly gracious God he is. All along here, I've been trying to relate Daniel's story to our own situation. And I hope that you're a good enough reader of the Bible to think, well, Pastor Kyle, maybe you shouldn't do that, right? We are not ancient Israelites. We have not been exiled into Babylon, right? So what legitimacy do we have for reading ourselves into Daniel's story? Well, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, we are called, Christians are called, strangers and exiles. So what I'm telling you is I'm not doing this myself. I'm building on what Scripture does, that God's Word understands God's people in Christ to be parallel to Daniel and his friends, that we are strangers and exiles in a fallen world. And it's not just Hebrews that says this, right? We saw how last week we were called to to, uh, live amidst a twisted and perverse generation. We're supposed to shine as lights in such a generation by faithfully holding on to Christ. So there's good reason why we should look at Daniel as an example for how to live wisely in exile. I think there's even more than that. It's not just that we're both called strangers and exiles. It's that Daniel does point us to Jesus himself. Daniel is a type of one who suffered innocently. We're not claiming Daniel's sinlessness, but we are saying Daniel is not complicit in the rebellion of his Israelite brothers and sisters who've been rejecting God's word and who are living in high-handed sin against God and profaning God's temple. Clearly, that's not Daniel. He's conscientiously seeking to obey God's law. And yet, he finds himself in the belly of the beast. There are probably gross sinners who got to stay back in Jerusalem while Daniel is carted off, having to leave family and home and live in the king's palace. He's one who suffers faithfully in exile in solidarity with God's people. And it's in this way that he's a pointer to Jesus. Jesus is the one who suffers the most extreme kind of exile. We're told that he was taken outside the camp. He was taken outside the city walls of Jerusalem, which itself is a a symbol of exile. But his exile is not just symbolic. Jesus is driven to the cursed cross. Jesus is defiled. He is driven to death outside the camp. 
But Jesus endured his test perfectly. He suffered obediently to the point of death. He willingly took on our shame. He willingly allowed himself to be defiled, to be cursed for the sake of our sin. And by his resurrection from the dead, he was proved to be the righteous son of God. This is the message that saves sinners. We know ourselves to have defiled ourselves in many ways, right? We have sinned against God, sometimes ignorantly, but just as often knowingly. We know what we were commanded to do, and we haven't done it. We deserve no share in God's kingdom. We deserve to to not be part of God's family. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus takes our place. He's exiled for us. He's cursed for us. He receives the penalty that sin deserves. And so if you trust in Jesus for salvation, you can be forgiven of your sins and welcomed into God's family. Amen. You can be declared righteous by faith in Christ. You can, be, you can go from being defiled to made fit for worship, for worship in the very throne room of God. And that's where Jesus takes us. Jesus makes it possible for us to boldly come before the throne of grace. <clears throat> And so our faith in God's deliverance is not based on just looking at Daniel's example and saying, you know, Daniel stood strong in the midst of a hard time. No, our faith that God will deliver us is because we look to see Christ. For our sake, he was killed, he was buried, and he rose again from the dead. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we know the resurrection power of God in Christ. It's because Jesus rose from the dead that we have a really optimistic 10,000-year time horizon. And because Jesus rose from the dead, we endure. And so once we come to understand that crucial truth and believe it, believe that Jesus took our place and that we are alive in him, when we understand that, then we can apply Daniel's wisdom for exiles. And that's why we read Colossians 1 earlier, and my brother Gio will help us meditate on it more this evening. We need Christ's wisdom and power to live in this evil age, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to endure with patience and joy until we receive our inheritance, until all the promises that are ours become true before our very eyes and we realize the consummation of what God has already given us. We await our salvation in that sense. We we know we've been saved, we are being saved, and we look forward to the day when that salvation will be complete. And so we have a greater knowledge of God's salvation than even Daniel did. Daniel, who endured lions and who lived faithfully in Nebuchadnezzar's throne, we're better equipped than he was because we know Christ in all of his fullness. And so it's by faith in Christ that we endure the way Daniel did, knowing that we're going to be tested for a time, but looking forward to that day when God will finally deliver. I want to be very careful here because it sounds like you could interpret what I'm saying and say, well, you know, next week there's a bucket of blessing that God's going to drop on your head, right? You can easily find a lot of preachers who are going to tell you exactly that. The blessing is about to come. It's kind of locked and loaded, and you just have to wait for God to pour it out. 
But the truth is that this time horizon needs to be that 10,000 year one because many of us, maybe all of us, will die before we see the fullness of this blessing poured out. And we need to look no further than Daniel himself. Right? We read in this passage, he, he was exiled as a young man at the beginning of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, and he lives in Babylon until Cyrus's reign. And there's no evidence in Scripture that he was among those who returned from Babylon to Jerusalem. Daniel died, never having seen the return to Jerusalem that he hoped for, even though he did have visions of God's kingdom defeating all the evil kingdoms of the world. But he was sustained through a whole lifetime in exile by his faith in the goodness and power of God. The same goodness and power that made him flourish and healthy when he was eating only bread and water. The same goodness and power that gave him super abundant wisdom so that he outstripped all the magicians of Nebuchadnezzar's court by ten times, however you measure that, right? It's just an amazing gift that he was given. And he trusted God to provide for him and to provide for his people through the exile. Brothers and sisters, this is our hope today. We live as strangers and exiles. We live not seeing all of our greatest dreams come true. We live with suffering, with sin and broken relationships. We live with illnesses. We live with financial hardships. We live with not knowing whether our children will come to faith or not. Right? We live with a whole load of burdens. And we, we could go around this room and share burdens for hours and not exhaust them. But we are sustained by knowing our good God and King is greater than anything this world has to offer. That when it comes down to it, there's really no competition. There may be momentary conflict, but God, the good giver, will outstrip every gift. He will give us life. And so we trust in the Christ who will never leave us or forsake us and who will come again to put the world to rights. Wise exiles endure in trusting Christ. Let's pray. Father, it's so encouraging to read the story of your powerful and abundant giving. And yet we confess that we often feel lost and foolish. We don't know how to deal with the situations that we face. We often are bewildered even by our own sin. How do we repent? How do we trust? And so we pray that you would help us keep our eyes fixed on Christ, that we would not be so focused on our struggles that we fail to see your goodness to us in Jesus. We pray that you'll help us to endure. And we pray that you'll help us help each other to endure that we would speak your words of truth, that we would counsel each other with the good news of the gospel so that we would endure until Christ returns where you call us home. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.